for great-looking T-shirts, hoodies, and sweatshirts. The TNT Shop is now open at TNTradio.live. Interviews, news, and analysis of the day's global events. This is Compass with Jason Olborn on today's News Talk, TNT Radio. Hello and welcome to the Global News Hour. On today's show, InfoWars journalist Owen Schroyer describes his time in prison for so-called speech crimes. Mainstream news journalists both promote and question charging Australian consumers to use cash. Mainstream news journalists both promote and question that is really an interesting topic. We'll get onto that later on. A former Italian health minister is reportedly under investigation for pushing COVID vaccines despite knowing of their harms. And despite a migration crisis in the West, Japan is in a severe population decline. While Ukrainian President Zelensky has been called out for his analysis of the war in Ukraine as he tries to convince the American Congress for more funds. But first today, as the situation goes from bad to worse in Gaza, with Israel relentless in its attacks, the humanitarian crisis continues to reach new lows. With flooding now in the war-torn area, people who are already displaced and living in the makeshift tents are struggling to find food and water and are hoping someone in the international community can do something anything to stop and help out those who are suffering what is being termed as collective punishment. Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu refuses to stop what more nations around the world are pleading for, a humanitarian ceasefire. With more, we cross to this report from Gaza. In the cold winter rain, a picture of misery and death in northern Gaza. It's the body of a girl killed in an Israeli attack on Jabalia. She was found, but there are many still trapped under the rubble in the rain. Ambulances are stuck on flooded streets, but rescue workers of Gaza are still carrying on. Israel's total blockade and attacks have pulverized Gaza's already broken sewage system. And now the streets are churning the decay of war. These makeshift tents too offer little protection for tens of thousands of Palestinians struggling to stay dry and warm. We got drenched inside the tent and I don't know where to put the children. Water flooded the tent. I wrapped the children in blankets and came here. I don't know what to do because of the rain. Where to go? There is no drinking water, so families are collecting rainwater to drink. Food, medicine and fuel are all running low. For many who had to escape Israel's onslaught with just clothes on their backs, there are no blankets, no mattresses, just the looming threat of disease and starvation. What is the fault of this child who was born in a tent in war? There are no clothes for her, no food or drink. The children here cry for a morsel of bread. I appeal to the world, those who have a conscience to save us from what we are in and return to our homes. Israel has ignored calls for a ceasefire, with indication that its assault on Gaza could last for months, and so would the collective punishment of Palestinians in this winter of war. Almost as if on cue, a new report says that the United Kingdom is vulnerable to a catastrophic cyber attack that could cripple large sections of its most critical infrastructure. A parliamentary report has warned, almost like those Obamas are oracles. The report published on Wednesday by the UK Parliament's Joint Committee on the National Security Strategy claims that the government failed to adequately invest in systems designed to prevent large-scale cyber attacks. It was also highly critical of the UK's Home Office, 
under whose remit the prevention of cyber attacks falls and said that former Home Secretary Suella Braverman had neglected the issue. The committee said that Braverman showed no interest in the prevention of ransomware, a type of cybercrime in which data and files are stolen and a payment is demanded to return the files or prevent them from being released. Clear political priority is given instead to other issues, such as illegal migration and small boats, the report said, adding that a catastrophic attack, which is said might come at any moment, could pose a serious threat to physical safety of human life. The UK's critical national infrastructure, vital to the proper functioning of society, including energy and water supply, as well as health, transportation and telecommunications, is also in severe jeopardy. The report warned the likely event of a massive catastrophic ransomware attack, the failure to rise to meet this challenge will rightly be seen as an inexcusable strategic failure. Dame Margaret Beckett, the chair of the JCNSS, told Sky News on Wednesday. The National Health Service was also identified as a possible target, with the committee noting that it relies on out-of-date systems, which complicate even simple upgrades because of a historical lack of investment. Last year, NHS patient data was illegally obtained by hackers, causing widespread issues to services, including ambulance dispatch, patient referrals, mental health services and emergency prescriptions. The NHS was also struck by a similar ransomware attack in 2017. In response to the report, a Home Office spokesperson said that the UK was well prepared to respond to cyber threats and had taken robust action to improve our cyber defences, adding that the UK has this year sanctioned 18 people it said was involved in spreading ransomware online. Paradoxically, as these threats increase, the same governments who report on these risks push harder to switch to a digital ID. And Argentina's government has announced it will slash the value of its currency, the peso, by more than 50% against the US dollar as its new president seeks radical solutions to fix the country's worst economic crisis in decades, as inflation now tops 160%. President Javier Malay's economy chief announced the painful measure on Tuesday, saying it was necessary for Argentina to avoid catastrophe. Devaluation would drop the peso's value from 400 to the dollar to more than 800 to the dollar, a blow to tens of millions of Argentinians already struggling to make ends meet. Economy Minister Luis Caputo announced a raft of other austerity measures, including sweeping subsidy cuts, the cancellation of tenders for public works projects and plans to axe nine government ministries. However, the government plans to double social spending for the poorest to help them absorb the economic shock. For a few months, we're going to be worse than before, Caputo said in his televised address. If we continue as we are, we are inevitably heading toward hyperinflation. He said the planned measures drew praise from the International Monetary Fund, to whom Argentina owes $45 billion dollars but sparked harsh criticism from some progressive activists. The economic overhaul is part of the new strategy by Malay, who was sworn in Sunday and has aggressively sought to tackle the fiscal deficit he believes is the root of Argentina's economic woes. A self-described anarcho-capitalist, Malay argues harsh austerity is needed to put Argentina back on the path to prosperity and that there is no time for a gradualist approach. However, he has promised any adjustments will almost entirely affect the state rather than the private sector. Argentinians disillusioned with skyrocketing inflation and a 40% poverty rate have proven surprisingly receptive to his vision. Still, Malay's roadmap is likely to encounter fierce opposition from left-leaning Peronist movement lawmakers and unions it controls, whose members have said they refuse to lose wages. With more, we pick up this reporting from Al Jazeera. 
Fernando Sabore owns a small market in the province of Buenos Aires, and he's trying to adjust to the economic change taking place in Argentina. This week, the new government announced an over 50% evaluation of the peso. Sabore says he was not surprised by the policy change because he believes it's part of the economic chaos that has reigned in Argentina for years. I'm worried because we're a family business, we're not a company, and the increase in prices will affect the Argentinian family and they will have to pay double. How much can they take? I don't know. The government also announced an increase in cash handouts to the poor. But many believe the middle class will likely struggle as prices soar. Argentines have been struggling with inflation for years, but in the past few weeks, the prices of most products have doubled or even tripled, like the price of oil, for example, because of the possibility of a devaluation. Now that it has happened, there are fear that inflation could be even higher, something that will have a huge impact on the population. Devaluation, lifting subsidies on transport and energy, reducing the number of ministries, the plan of new president Javier Milei to cut down government spending and reduce the deficit. We were heading towards hyperinflation and our decision is to avoid it. By definition, hyperinflation is the absolute rejection of the currency and a spiraling in price increases. Javier Milei came to office with a promise to transform Argentina's economy. Now many are hoping his measures will start to show results soon. Teresa Bo, Al Jazeera, Buenos Aires. The U.S. House of Representatives voted Wednesday to formally authorize its ongoing impeachment inquiry into President Joe Biden as Republicans unite behind the effort, even though they have yet to find evidence of wrongdoing by the Democrat. It has been reported the Republican-controlled chamber voted 221 to 212 along party lines to approve the probe, which is examining whether Biden improperly benefited from his 53-year-old son, Hunter, Foreign business dealings hours after the younger Biden refused a call to testify behind closed doors. The White House has dismissed the inquiry as unsubstantiated by facts and politically motivated. Biden is preparing for a possible 2024 election rematch with his Republican predecessor, Donald Trump. Trump is the first president in US history to be impeached twice. He's currently preparing for four upcoming criminal trials. The effort will almost certainly fail to remove Biden from office. Even if the House votes to impeach the president, the Senate would then have to vote to convict him on the charges of a two-thirds vote, a near impossibility in a chamber where Biden's fellow Democrats hold a 51 49 majority. But it could help Republicans highlight their allegations of corruption through much of the 2024 campaign. The vote comes three months after Republicans informally began the probe. It is not required a step to remove a president or other official from office. However, authorization could give Republicans more legal authority to force Biden's administration to cooperate and could help to counter accusations from Democrats who say it lacks legitimacy. House Republicans allege that Biden and his family profited from his actions when he served as President Barack Obama's vice president from 2009 to 2017, and they have zeroed in on his son's business ventures in Ukraine and China during that period turned up evidence that the younger Biden led clients to believe that he could provide access to the vice president's office, but they have not provided evidence that Biden took any official actions to help those businesses or benefited financially from them. Deflecting Biden in a statement chastised House Republicans for not acting on his request for any of his domestic priorities or providing emergency funding. 
for Ukraine and Israel. House Republicans are not joining me. Instead of doing anything to help make Republicans' lives better, they are focused on attacking me with lies, Biden said. And earlier Monday, Hunter Biden defied the committee's subpoena to testify behind closed doors, saying he would testify only in public as he feared his words would otherwise be misrepresented. There is no evidence to support the allegations that my father was financially involved in my business because it didn't happen. Hunter Biden said members of the committee said they would take steps to hold him in contempt of Congress, which could potentially result in prison time. The House has now spoken, and I think pretty loudly, pretty clearly, with every single Republican voting in favour of moving into this official impeachment inquiry phase of our constitutional duty to do oversight, said Republican Rep Jim Jordan. Biden faces federal charges that he lied about his drug use while buying a handgun and separate charges of failing to pay $1.4 million in taxes. This pled not guilty to the gun charges, and his lawyer says he has repaid his taxes in full. In the depths of my addiction, I was extremely irresponsible with my finances, but to suggest that it is grounds for an impeachment inquiry is beyond the absurd. It's shameless, he said. A common theme in power is to use projection, accuse others of what you are guilty of. It appears a lot more effective when you strike first, as was the case in the multiple criminal charges laid against Donald Trump. First time in history, a US former president has endured this. Meanwhile, here is Hunter Biden speaking to reporters, going on the front foot, applying the legal strategy of calling for a public hearing. Already been a five year investigation of me. Yet, here I am, Mr. Chairman, taking up your offer. When you said we can bring these people in for depositions or committee hearings, whichever they choose. Well, I've chosen. I am here to testify at a public hearing today to answer any of the committee's legitimate questions. Republicans do not want an open process where Americans can see their tactics, expose their baseless inquiry, or hear what I have to say. What are they afraid of? I'm here. I'm ready. What are they afraid of or what is Hunter Biden afraid of? So why is Hunter actually avoiding this subpoena, which could ultimately put him behind bars for contempt? Well, The Real Beef's podcast, Don Keith, explains exactly what Hunter is up to. And you see, the whole point of a pre-trial or pre-hearing deposition is to get a witness on record and under oath while being questioned by attorneys so that when the trial or hearing comes, those attorneys can hold that witness to account in case he or she attempts to change their story in the middle of the trial. And that's what Hunter is afraid of here. You see, the deposition process for the House requires that the witnesses be sworn in and under oath, after which time each side, Democrat and Republican, will have a representative, usually an attorney, each having a full hour to question Hunter Biden until it's the other side's turn. Now, if we juxtapose that process with what we normally see in a public house hearing, it's easy to understand why Hunter favors the latter. A public hearing involves each member of the committees getting five minutes each to ask Hunter some gotcha questions or refute the narrative of the other side, but it's really more about each of them grandstanding in hopes of getting that primetime soundbite on one of the major networks. And they usually don't get a whole hell of a lot accomplished because most of them are either bad lawyers or not lawyers at all, but not attractive enough to be movie stars, so they chose politics instead. 
versus the vicious and highly seasoned lawyers who will be questioning Hunter behind closed doors, preventing him from escaping the truth once he does get in a public forum. If Hunter Biden is complaining that a five-year investigation is the reason to give him a pass and is employing legal strategies to protect himself against evidence used against him in court, you can bet he is sweating bullets as the spotlight is now shining brightly upon him. And after the break, Japan's alarming population decline, you're watching and listening to Compass on TNT Radio. TNT Radio's Steve Malzberg. 13 Israeli hostages released uh, as part of that ceasefire deal uh, 49 days after they were taken hostage. 49 days. So that still leaves about 225 to 227 more hostages. Uh, I'm with John Bolton, the former national security advisor to Donald Trump. I'm with Britt Hume of, uh, of Fox News. I'm with a bunch of other people who say this gives Hamas too much time to do whatever they want to do, to do whatever they need to do, to regroup, to rearm, to re-strategize. And as much as you want the hostages back, it can't be at the expense of the other part of the mission, which is to destroy Hamas. So I think it's a mistake. Steve Malzberg on TNT Radio. Radio works because of its ability to personalize to the listener. What's exciting these days is that people are rediscovering it. You know, people are really rediscovering just how powerful radio is, how ubiquitous it is. It's in our cars, it's in our homes. There are so many new ways to access it. It's everywhere. To find out more, go to tntradio.live. This, this is Compass with Jason Olborn on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Welcome back. As Australia's government unveils a new migration strategy to clamp down on increasingly out-of-control population growth, other countries are grappling with the opposite problem. While Australia brought in a record half million migrants last financial year, Japan posted its own record, a total population decline of nearly 800,000 people. The figures released in June by Japan's Internal Affairs Ministry showed deaths hit a record high of more than 1.56 million, while births hit a record low 771,000. Even a record 10% increase in foreign residents to 2.99 million couldn't halt the 14th straight year of declining population, which reached 122.5 million in 2022. According to the United Nations projections, many countries are expected to see population declines over the next three decades due to a combination of declining fertility rates and emigration. Japan's situation is uniquely dire due to its, the age of its population. 29% of Japanese are now aged over 65, and 1 in 10 are aged 80 or older. Japan is standing on the verge of whether we can continue to function as a society, Prime Minister Fumio Kishida said in January. Focusing attention on policies regarding children and child rearing is an issue that cannot wait and cannot be postponed. Like many developed nations, Australia is grappling with the consequences of decades of gradually declining birth rates as well. Since 1976, Australia's total fertility rate has been below replacement level, about 2.1 births per woman, the Australian Institute of Family Studies has said. Replacement levels is the level at which a population is replaced from one generation to the next without immigration. The fertility rate peaked at 3.55 in 1961, the same year the contraceptive pill became available and has been on a gradual decline ever since. 
It hit a record low of just 1.59 in 2020 before increasing to 1.7 in 2021, according to the Australian Bureau of Statistics. At the same time, the average age of first-time mothers has steadily increased. The story does not take into account excess deaths or any links to unknown long-term vaccine outcomes. And Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky has contradicted frontline developments by claiming that Russian troops have failed to capture a single village from Kiev's forces this year. The Ukrainian leader talked up his country's supposed military achievements in an interview with Fox News anchor Brett Bayer on Tuesday. Zelensky is visiting Washington this week to urge continued military assistance for Kiev. The next year, political clashes on Capitol Hill have caused a White House request for more than $110 billion in foreign security spending, including over $60 billion for Ukraine to be blocked. Speaking in English, Zelensky claimed that Ukrainian forces had destroyed mostly Russian fleet that was a situation situated in our waters and near occupied Crimea. Kiev has launched several successful attacks on Russia's Black Sea fleet using Western-provided cruise missiles, although Moscow's forces have repelled numerous other assaults. Zelensky further claimed that Ukraine had killed 20,000 members of the now disbanded Wagner private military company and that Russia did not occupy any Ukrainian village during the year. The Ukrainian leader made the assertions despite evidence to the contrary on the battlefield, with Wagner fighters playing an important role in the fighting for the Donbass city of Bakhmut. Now, the Zelensky government had declared the city an invincible fortress and reportedly ignored repeated US calls to pull troops out. After losing control of the city in May, Zelensky downplayed the significance of the settlement, declaring that it had no longer existed and remained only in our hearts. And in early 2023, Kiev also lost control of Solidar in Donbass. Fox News host Bayer did not dispute Zelensky's claims that Russia had enjoyed no sex success in the conflict. And it's very important to support Ukraine. We showed really success on the Black Sea. That really was very difficult operation. And we now created the root, grain root, and Russia doesn't have influence. And we, on this root, grain root, and we destroyed mostly Russian fleet that was situated in our waters and near our temporary occupied Crimea. That was very good. I think that's huge result. And also we spoke about the Wagners, you know, on the east of our country, we destroyed their 20,000 of the terrorists. And you know that they walked in Asia, in Africa, and in Ukraine, and in Syria. So I think that it was so difficult for us to do it. But, but what is, I think, the most important thing to understand what's going on, that Russia didn't occupy any village, any Ukrainian village during this year. It's also worth noting that Zelensky and his aides publicly clashed with Ukraine's top general, Valery Zaluzhny, who after described the frontline situation as a stalemate back in November. The president's office finally acknowledged that no progress was made by the end of the month. A profile of Zelensky published by Time magazine in late October said his close associates believe him to be delusional. His belief in a Ukrainian victory over Russia is immovable, verging on the messianic, according to the outlet. And Obama appointed district judge Tanya Chutkin paused um, former President Donald Trump's 2020 election trial schedule while the appeal for his presidential immunity claim is pending. In early December, Chutkin rejected Trump's bid to have his case dismissed 
based on presidential immunity, prompting Trump to appeal to the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. Trumpkin agreed Wednesday to pause the pretrial deadlines and further proceedings pending the appeals court decision. The court agrees with both parties that defendants' appeal automatically stayed any further proceedings that would move this case towards trial or impose additional burdens of litigation on the defendant, Chutkin wrote on Wednesday. Meanwhile, Special Counsel Jack Smith asked the Supreme Court to take up the question Monday before the D.C. Circuit reaches a decision. The Supreme Court agreed to expedite its consideration of his petition, asking Trump attorneys to weigh in by December the 20th. Chutkin said she would reconsider whether to maintain the March 4 trial date after the appeal is resolved. She noted that the pause does not strip her of jurisdiction to enforce the measures it has already imposed to safeguard the integrity of these proceedings, including the gag order imposed on the former president. If jurisdiction is returned to this court, it will, consistent with its duty to ensure both a speedy trial and fairness for all parties, consider at that time whether to retain or continue the dates of any still future deadlines and proceedings, including the trial schedule for March the 4th. 2024, Chutkin also wrote. And coming up after the news headlines, journalist Owen Schroyer describes his time behind bars after his sentencing for speech crimes. You're watching and listening to Compass on TNT Radio. TNT. Here's what's making news. TNT Radio News. Matt Boyland here with a look at your TNT headlines. US House Republicans have vowed to hold Hunter Biden in contempt of Congress after he refused to comply with their subpoena, ordering him to testify in a private hearing as part of the House's impeachment investigation into his father. Elon Musk is reportedly opening his own school focused on science, technology, engineering and mathematics. And the US has formally requested military assistance from Australia in response to rising tensions in the Middle East. Why not give TNT Radio a follow? We're on all major social platforms, including Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Gab, and Getter. Help us get the word out as we cover the biggest topics of our time right here on today's News Talk. TNT Radio. TNT Radio. Well, it finally happened. A journalist sentenced to prison for speech crimes. And InfoWars reporter Owen Troyer spoke with Tucker Carlson on Tuesday evening, just days after he was released from jail for said speech crimes. The Biden Department of Justice jailed Owen Troyer for these crimes. Troyer was sentenced to 60 days in prison back in September in a D.C. court for his actions on January 6, 2021 and before. He stood outside the Capitol on January 6th and warned Trump supporters not to go inside the building. Schroyer also frequently spoke out against the stolen 2020 election. Department of Justice prosecutors sought prison time from or against Owen for his speech crimes. And of course, the lawless DC judge agreed. Schroyer pled guilty in June to a single Class A misdemeanor of entering and remaining in a restricted building or grounds on that fateful day in 2021. He was initially charged in August of 2021, eight months after remaining outside the US Capitol on January 6th and warning Trump supporters not to enter the Capitol alongside Alex Jones. After nearly two years of fighting charges related to his presence outside the Capitol on that day, Owen made the decision, strangely, to plead guilty to a lesser charge part of the whole process of lawfare. Schroyer told Tucker Carlson that he believes someone high up at the DOJ had it out for him and wanted to make an example out of him as well. Let's play part of that interview now. I mean, you weren't even accused of going inside the Capitol building on January 6th. You were not accused of setting anything on fire or committing any act of violence. So, 
I mean, on what grounds could they steal your cell phones and violate your most basic privacies? I, I don't understand that. Like, what's the crime? Well, the whole notion that the U.S. attorneys was arguing is that somehow I was behind the entire event that day. That's what their whole notion is, is that somehow I led the charge for what resulted in January 6th and people going into the Capitol and everything else. And I wanted to prove beyond a reasonable doubt, look, here's all my communications. That was never anybody's plan. I had nothing to do with that. I never went in the building. And they acknowledge that. They acknowledge that. And they still decided to come down heavy handed on me. But it's worth mentioning too, Tucker, part of the process here with me turning all of this over and cooperating, my attorney and my understanding was that they weren't going to press for jail time. That was the mutual understanding that we had here. And then they tried to hit me with 120 days. And I'm not curious if that didn't come from the minds of the U.S. attorneys, but perhaps someone higher up at the DOJ, I might even believe it's at the very top of the DOJ. Maybe Merrick Garland is the one who's trying to put me behind bars and make an example out of me. Going to prison would change anyone's life. Going to prison unjustly is the next level. To cope with the day-to-day -day brutality of being targeted this way, and then layering upon that the injustices put upon that person whilst inside is another thing altogether. One can choose, though, to be a victim or perhaps a survivor. Schroer went on to describe what his time inside was like, what he was forced to endure, and indeed what he actually learnt. Well, I will tell you, I think, and this is kind of not something I would expected to have said in this interview, but it's just true. I think God wanted me to experience this for multiple reasons, Tucker. I'm a big believer in God, and I think everything that happens in our life is for a reason. Yes. And I believe God wanted me to go through this experience because not just the obvious example of speech imprisonment that I had to face or a speech crime that is now potentially a precedent that could be used against any journalist, which puts fear in my heart, not just for me in the present day, but for future Americans, that they have to be afraid to speak and to do work, honest work as a journalist. But, you know, there was a, an unexpected issue that was clearly shown to me through this process, and that's that the Justice Department and the incentive behind imprisonment is wrong. I mean, I can tell you the details of my stay. They're pretty much horrific, Tucker. I spent the majority of the time in lockdown. I went right out of solitary confinement into what's called a special housing unit for a phone call I made thanking people for sending me mail. People that were in jail for decades, some of the people that worked inside the prison for decades, when they saw that what's called a shot, in the prisons, they said, I've never seen anybody get punished for this before. So I got sent to prison as a speech prisoner, and then I got sent to the prison inside the prison for my speech. And, you know, I had a couple off the record conversations with people while I was in there, and basically they were saying the same thing like, look, Owen, we don't like what's been done to you here, but these are orders coming from the very top. Your beef isn't with us here at this prison. Your beef is with the people at the top. They're the ones still coming after you, even when you're in here. And I'll leave it at that. So nobody's ever heard of a misdemeanor in a federal, a federal prison until me. Nobody's ever heard of somebody going to the special housing unit for making a phone call, thanking people for mail until me. And so I don't know why they want to make an example of me so much, except that I just speak the truth and I'll say it right to their face if I'm given the opportunity. 
but we need prison reform in this country badly, Tucker. Most of the people that are in that prison, not just me, do not belong there. And there are way more political prisoners outside the realm of what you and I might think. You go after corrupt lawyers, judges, insurance companies, you go after uh, the corruption in Medicare and Medicaid, they lock you up and throw away the key. I couldn't believe some of the stories. And while I'm in there, the Bureau of Prison wants $2 billion. Matt Gates brought my name up during that hearing. The Bureau of Prisons doesn't need $2 billion more annually. They need to release $2 billion worth of prisoners because we have a prison industrial complex in this country and we have a justice department that is not incentivized by justice. Troyer's comments and attitude coming out there on the front foot kind of reminds me a little bit of the scene from Star Wars where 1977, where Darth Vader is up against Obi-Wan and Obi-Wan puts his blade, his lightsaber up and he says, strike me down, Vader, and I'll be more powerful than you can ever imagine. Troyer exemplifies the battle taking place right now. The incarceration of him has not just made him more popular, but stronger. He can no longer be intimidated by the Biden regime, leaking political capital faster than Biden can promise more billions to Zelensky. But by explaining his views about prison reform, that's groundbreaking. How many people believe that they have been unjustly in prison? Whilst not everyone is innocent, punishment ought to be applied until understanding and growth has been achieved, which is a higher level than simple rehabilitation. It opens the door for an entire rethink about modern society and from a non-woke perspective. More power to people like Owen Schroyer and to all those that are putting the world before themselves as they seek to bring truth to the world that we've never seen anything like what we're going through right now. And coming up after the break, we explore news reporting that a former Italian health minister is under investigation for pushing the COVID vaccine despite being aware of its harms. You're watching and listening to Compass on TNT Radio. With his expert analysis and opinion, this is TNT Radio's Timothy Shea. Congratulations to new Argentine President Javier Malay, who was sworn in over the weekend. Malay's election last month rocked the South American nation and the world and returned Argentina's government to the people after decades of socialists robbing them blind. How blind? The hyperinflation in Argentina has been outrageous, impoverishing up to 40% of the population. Inflation for 2023 stands at 183%. As bad as Bidenomics is, at least it's not that bad. And President Malay set an example for once and future President Donald Trump by signing an executive order as his first official act in office that reduced the number of ministries from 21 to 9. 12 ministries, such as the Ministry of Women, Genders and Diversity, are no more. Not only will that help the bottom line in Argentina, it will expand liberty and bring a better quality of life to the Argentine people. Here's hoping that that happens in the United States in 2025. From MAGAinstitute.com, this is Timothy Shea for TNT Radio. Military families often sacrifice precious time away from loved ones while serving our country. And for those with children, the separation can be especially difficult. We were worried that with him leaving, that she would lose those connections with her dad. Some of life's best moments happen between parents, children, and the pages of a good book. 
United Through Reading provides that connection. You can watch your mom or dad read a book to you, and it almost feels like they're really there. We ensure they remain a consistent, meaningful part of their children's lives, no matter the distance. Just seeing Jacob recognize Daddy again after a long time just melted my heart. And now, as we're facing greater isolation from our loved ones, United Through Reading is also available to veterans. Learn more about United Through Reading and download our free secure app at unitedthroughreading.org. I was such a young age. Everything changed. My name is Chloe. When I was 13, my dad was diagnosed with cancer. When I found out, I just didn't know how to react. I felt like everything was just kind of closing in on me. It just became a routine. Dad's doing chemo. I'd come home from school, wait for mum to finish work, and we'd go straight to the hospital, spend a few hours there, just draw. It was hard to navigate going to school. Hundreds of kids, and I was the only one with a dying dad. He was diagnosed in March, and then he died in October. Towards the end, I heard about canteen. It kind of felt nice to know that they had other people like me. They understood what I was going through, and we didn't even have to chat about cancer. In 2020, I became a youth ambassador, so I can help others the way they helped me. I've done so many things since I was 13. I've graduated high school, university, gotten my license, made a move across the country. Life now is just a whole lot more fun. Please give a gift today to support more young people like me experiencing cancer. Jason Olborn and Compass on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Welcome back. Mario Giordano is an Italian journalist and television presenter. He received several disciplinary sanctions and has been sued for racism and racial hate speech. He's known to be one of the most controversial journalists in Italian media sphere for his sensationalistic style in his TV shows. But according to his reporting on November the 22nd, former Italian health minister Roberto Speranza is under investigation for knowingly pushing the COVID vaccines despite being aware that they caused harm and even death. Greg Reese is an American independent journalist who followed the story onto German news and this is part of that report. Former Italian Health Minister Roberto Speranza is under investigation for homicide after emails reveal that from the very start of the vaccinations, he knew the shots were killing people and gave orders to local health authorities to conceal deaths and serious side effects in order to reassure Italian citizens of their safety and to not jeopardize the vaccination campaign. The story has been reported on both German and Italian news networks. I will now provide an English translation. The Rome Public Prosecutor's Office is investigating Roberto Speranza, the Italian government's health minister, during the time of COVID measures. He was responsible for the vaccination campaign. The investigations are the result of complaints related to the so-called AIFA emails from the Italian Medicines Agency. The former director of AIFA, Nicola Magrini, is also under investigation. The publication of these internal emails revealed that they had been aware of the dangers of the COVID vaccination from the start. The accusation is that the responsible minister and the head of the drug authority knowingly and deliberately exposed the unsuspecting Italian population to this risk. Yes, they encouraged Italians to get vaccinated. 
Vaccination was even made mandatory for certain professional groups. Consequently, many side effects, including fatal ones, came to light. The investigations are for murder, serious bodily harm, and more, because Speranza and Magrini evidently gave instructions to the local health authorities to conceal the deaths and serious side effects that occurred immediately after the vaccinations began, in order not to jeopardize the vaccination campaign and to reassure the citizens about their safety. The responsible minister and the head of AIFA are now expected to answer for these actions. I mean, while, while there's a long way to go before this gets to a level where we can see prosecutions, but it is certainly deserving of more investigation around the world. At this point, no honest government anywhere that pushed experimental medicine cannot be taken seriously if it doesn't perform the most thorough investigations. But then again, these governments offered the vaccine makers indemnity, so it is in their own interests, therefore, not to investigate. Meanwhile, here is a reminder of Peter McCullough, Dr. Peter McCullough, explaining that the Pfizer COVID vaccine should never have been approved in the first place. The Australian Medical Network, formerly the COVID Medical Network, filed a FOIA request asking to see what patient-level data the TGA looked at before granting provisional approval for the Pfizer jab. It reported back months later that it never had any. This is awfully convenient. Let's now hear Dr. McCullough now. In the randomized trials, the original ones that Aaron Siri quoted, Pfizer was the lead. We've now learned from the time of the data cutoff in mid-November of 2020 to the time of the FDA meeting December 10th, 2020, there were 38 additional deaths that occurred. These were people on the vaccine, 38 additional deaths. Pfizer did not update the core slides at the FDA committee meeting, nor did they provide an appendix to the briefing booklet. No one on the panel asked Pfizer if there were additional deaths. Now, I've served on FDA panels. I've served as an advisor to companies. I've served as the main presenter. In each and every instance, I've always asked the sponsor has anything else happened since the time you closed the data set? That is a standard question. So the entire FDA approval process failed. Turns out there was more deaths with Pfizer. And if it would be properly analyzed, the conclusion was there's a three to fourfold excess cardiovascular risk with Pfizer compared to placebo. If that meeting would have been conducted correctly and if Pfizer would have been fully responsive to presenting the data and fully, uh, uh, you know, fully and honestly and fairly presenting everything that happened, that product should never have been approved. Pfizer should have never been approved. There's been much chatter on social media and even in mainstream news this week about the removal of cash from the Australian economy with yet another attempted vilification of paper currency. Usually convenience is used as the carrot to encourage take-up and compliance. Here is Australia's Reserve Bank Governor being asked about the cost to business of using cash presented in an absurd manner that credit card fees are passed on to consumers, so should cash. Do we need to start reflecting on the true cost of processing cash for businesses and therefore not represent it as a fee-free option for customers while always charging customers when they use their credit card when you know there's no other option really? Yeah. Um, so, look, it is um, a good question, and the issue with cash has always been that um, businesses don't really understand, I think, the costs of, 
of cash in their business. Um, uh, they are at the moment, I think, think uh, understanding it a bit more, um, but um, in the past they haven't really. Um, they've called shrinkage as their main cost, which basically means theft. Um, but really they haven't really um, internalised, if you like, the costs of processing. Um, I think what the challenge with cash is that it really does have a big community, um, public's, public service sort of um, uh, aura attached to it. If you try to charge people to use cash, they're prepared to pay to get it out of an ATM, but if, if, um, if businesses started charging people to use cash, I suspect there would be um, a very big uh, backlash. Having said that, it's also true that as economists, you want people to face the prices of using particular services that reflect the cost of those services. So um, at the moment, I think we're probably in a position where um, it's very difficult to actually enforce payment for cash, but it's going to end up, what's going to happen and what does happen at the moment is that the costs end up embedded in the costs of the financial institutions that are providing the services um, and people don't face them. I think, I think it'd be a very big challenge, though, to get people to face the costs of cash. Credit card fees are allowed to be passed on to consumers as banks charge vendors a fee for using this service. Given the consumer is using the bank's money and not their own is part of the difference and many credit cards still have an interest-free component to their balances, meaning the bank must charge the vendor for the use of that money in the first instance. Cash, though, is in the consumer's hand. It's a completely different prospect. The time spent counting the cash at the end of the day and going to the bank is just a cost of doing business. Just like paying rent, businesses do not add on a rent fee to their consumers. Bullock is right though, people will struggle with the idea of paying to use cash. Meanwhile, on Channel 7, Sunrise star Natalie Barr has exposed the biggest issue with society increasingly turn away from the use of cash by pointing out how disruptive internet outages can be for small businesses. As reported by Channel 7, Nat, who they called quick thinking, raised the effect of a possible internet outage in a cashless society, citing the recent issues facing Optus customers last month. The problem is, do we need cash for those just-in-case moments? She said, like when the Optus outage took place, when people couldn't pay for anything, and cafes and small businesses had to shut down for the day because they couldn't do anything else, she said. The Optus outage caused chaos for families and business owners on November the 8th, when the internet service provider failed to provide service to their businesses and residential customers. Meanwhile, speaking to Daisy Cousins, Senator Gerard Rennick explains what the risks of a central bank digital currency is. Tell us, what threat does digital currency present to Australians, in your opinion? Well, there's two threats. One's monetary and one's surveillance. I will stand here and I will tell you that I do not want the government in the family home, in the boardroom, in the doctor's waiting room, in the classroom. I don't want government involved in any of those aspects of our lives. But when it comes to managing currencies, I am of the view that one currency, one country. The coins in the pocket of the passengers on the first fleet were a mixture of currencies from all around the world and included English guineas, shillings and pence, Spanish dollars, Indian rupees and Dutch guilders. It was confusing to try and use these coins to trade. 
because no one knew how much they were worth when compared to each other. This coin confusion meant that other ways of trading were used. People bartered for goods and services with anything they had. Food and rum became popular items to trade as well. In 1805, there was a significant drought, some harsh conditions, which meant that the foreign currency was repatriated offshore. There was no currency left onshore and they ended up in the rum rebellion. And that literally went the proverbial up. Luckily enough, we had Lachlan Macquarie who came along in 1810. And he was the first governor to see Australia not as a colony, but as a country. And he knew that if you wanted to be a good governor for your country, you needed a military to defend your borders and provide law and order. You needed a taxation system and you needed a monetary system. And he introduced the holy dollar. And that holy dollar was used to fund Sydney Hospital, the Sydney Barracks that still stand in Macquarie Street today. You've got to have good control of your currency. And I'm talking through a financial instrument mechanism here. And I know a lot of your listeners might disagree with me, but I hate things like Bitcoin and all of those digital currencies. It is a world of make-believe of bytes of zero and one. They are not backed by anything. They are nothing but digits, bytes on a computer screen. If we go ahead and somehow try and legitimise this digital currency, which we will never be able to regulate, we will never be able to keep up with. I think there's something like 8,000 digital currencies out there now, yeah. and they're all just running around chasing their tail. We are going down a fool's paradise. We're going the wrong way. And this is where we go. We change from being a financial instrument to a uh, form of control or a surveillance instrument. I think it's a stepping stone to the social license. Now, it's just like the vaccine. The vaccine in itself is a medical product or, you know, and, and some medical products provided they're fit for purpose are very good things, right? Mm. But when you start applying a vaccine, putting a vaccine passport over the top of the vaccine, you get then getting the totalitarian state coming into it. Now, yes. this is where the social credit system will be a threat. The social credit that'll come along with it later on. The Labor Party machine, which is instinctively command and control, mm. uh, will see digital currency as a way to control people's, you know, CO2 emissions, whether or not they're getting vaccines, whether or not, you know, they're spending money or doing whatever they're doing, they will see that as an opportunity for greater surveillance. It used to be that Parliament was filled with people like Rennick scrutinising ideas to make sure they were properly organised and sorted before you just leaped in. Now people like Rennick are the lone rangers in Australian Parliament. Let's now go back about 16 months to former World Economic Forum Global Leader for Tomorrow turned whistleblower, economist Professor Richard Werner, who explains how, according to his sources, the central bank digital currency that Rennick warns of will ultimately be held on small microchips implanted under the skin universal basic income will be used to become the coercion carrot for people to accept this gross invasion of their freedom, privacy and bodily autonomy. The last word today goes to Professor Richard Werner. The idea had been by central banks to introduce this, as we said, central bank digital currency. But have you ever seen an article or a video or, you know, whatever description of what it actually looks like? I mean, with central bank Paper money, we know what it looks like, right? Yeah, yeah. Bank digital currency, we know, and you know, we've used it ourselves, we know what it looks like. But what does central bank digital currency look like? You see? So they never talk about that because people won't actually like the looks of it. Because yeah. it apparently looks, and, and several central banks apparently, as I, as I heard from my sources, have already fully developed the final stage of CBDC. I mean, it comes in stages initially, likely through your mo mobile phone, yeah. but that's only an intermediate step. Mm. And the final stage is, you know, it's, it's small and it's the size of a, a grain of rice. 
Now, why is that? <laughs> and it, it, that grain of rice is your entire wallet? or? Yes, it's your digital ID, yeah. your wallet, uh, can be your your, um, your passport, your key. Um, now, of course, what we found with our debit cards or credit cards is they've already now moved to the system, you know, RFID chips, um, RFID yeah. um, technology where you just wave the thing, yeah. contactless. Yes. That is sort of the, the, you know, conditioning us in this direction that yeah. in the future you'll just wave your hand because you've got the microchip, the, the microchip implant yeah. under your skin. Yeah. Um, and because, you know, and each, each step there's a rational reason, you know, it's, it's easier just to wave this, isn't it? It's much faster because we always have to wait in the queues as everyone types in their numbers and all that. So just wave it, it's quicker. Uh, but the, the next rationalization will be, well, but you can lose your card, somebody can steal your card. Mm. And then you're just waving, yeah. that's kind of risky. Well, yeah. wouldn't it be nice if you couldn't lose it and nobody could steal it? Um, you know, so, but it's clear that that's sort of, it is almost a step too far for a lot of people because it is a violation of human dignity to actually inject something like that under the skin. So mm. um, that's where you need some more persuasion. Yeah. And it's interesting that this concept of universal basic income has been around for around a century where everyone should get some kind of citizen's you know, payment. Uh, but the, the billionaire elites have so far not liked that. But since 2015, they've all come out. I mean, all the, the big billionaires and, and World Economic Forum have come out. Oh, this is a good idea. Universal basic income. Well, why suddenly? Now, because now we have the technology for the microchip implant. Um, and so in 2017, Bill Gates came out and said that universal basic income is a good idea, um, but it's too early to introduce it. Now, what was still missing, so we had the technology for the microchip implant, but what was missing was the digital ID hadn't been introduced. Now, this is where this whole COVID agenda had become very useful. Mm. Quite incredible. The idea of a chip under the skin was first permeated into the mainstream or at least into large awareness from 2007 Zeitgeist film directed by Peter Joseph. And in breaking news, the US traffic safety regulator has confirmed Tesla is recalling over 2 million vehicles, almost all of the cars it sold in the US due to a risk associated with its autopilot software. The mass recall follows a two-year investigation into about a 1,000 crashes that occurred when the tech was in use. Documents posted yesterday by US safety regulators said the update would increase warnings and alerts to drivers and even limit the areas where basic versions of autopilot can operate. Tesla has now filed a safety recall with the agency related to the autopilot software system. The National Highway Traffic Safety Administration said, adding that the affected vehicles will receive an over-the-air software remedy. The recall covers nearly all 2 million Tesla vehicles on US roads. In a statement, the regulator said Tesla's autopilot system can provide inadequate driver engagement and usage controls that can lead to foreseeable misuse of the system. If autopilot is misused or if the driver fails to recognize that function is activated, the risk of an accident could be higher. Vehicles will be updated to include more alerts, encouraging drivers to keep their hands on the steering wheel. US-based Tesla, the brainchild of tech billionaire Elon Musk, has been hit with several lawsuits stemming from the car accidents and it's 
advanced driver assistance technology has provoked regulatory upgrades. Now, the, that concludes today's edition. Coming up next is Chris Smith. I hope you've enjoyed our version of global news as you watch and listen to Compass. I'm Jason Olborn for TNT Radio.